Please find 1 Corinthians 11 with me. We're going to spend our time in this chapter this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Before we get going, let me welcome everyone here, especially the visitors. Uh, I'll go ahead and issue an invitation. I'm going to be preaching this evening. And what I plan on doing this evening is basically a, uh, a wrap-up of our study of Revelation. I've uh, shared with you my aversion to introduction and review classes where we just kind of rehash everything we talked about. Um, what I'm going to try to do this evening is to try to encapsulate and sermonize the entire book of Revelation. We're going to take one part of it in the middle, but then try to broaden it out and then really try to make it applicable to our lives today. So this evening at 5, we'll talk a little bit more about the book of Revelation. When you, uh, when you visit Washington, D.C., something you're going to see a lot of are memorials. Um, the Lincoln Memorial, the Vietnam War Memorial, the World War II Memorial, and uh, plenty of others. For some reason, we have decided that our nation's capital needs to be populated by physical memorials of people and events. We also appoint days, like Memorial Day, to memorialize American soldiers who died in service to their country. Now, why do we do that? Why do we find the need to build statues and appoint days of memorial? Well, because there have existed people who lived lives of virtue and courage and sacrifice. And we who have reaped the benefits of, that, of those lives, who have reaped the benefits of those sacrifices, have an obligation to keep alive the memory of those people and those events. The root word of memorial is memory. And were we to be forgetful of those people from the past? Were we to take for granted what they did? Were we to treat the memorial lightly, I think the nicest thing we could possibly be called would just be ingrates, but there'd probably be much worse things and maybe more accurate things we could be called. Well, you shouldn't be surprised to know that the Bible and God are big on memory and memorial. You know, when the Passover meal was instituted in, in the book of Exodus, it is literally called a memorial day or a day of remembrance. And it is to be kept, they are told, throughout the generations. And what is the Lord's Supper if not a memorial? Because there existed someone who lived a life of consummate virtue and consummate courage and consummate sacrifice, we who have reaped the benefits of that sacrifice ought to keep that memory alive. That's what the Lord's Supper facilitates. The Lord's Supper is the name of the memorial God has given to stoke our grateful memory on a weekly basis. So what I want to do this morning is to talk about the Bible's Memorial Day. I want to do that through studying the, 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 the chapter of 1 Corinthians 11, which is a text that tells of a people who had forgotten about this memorial, who had twisted it and perverted it into something totally different. And we do not have the same issues with this that they had, I can say that. But we can say that because they made such a mess of the Lord's Supper, Paul holds their hand and he takes them and all of his readers back to the basics of that meal. The Lord's Supper is a memorial, Paul teaches us. The Lord's Supper is first and foremost about Christ and not about us and our appetites. The Lord's Supper is meant to unite us and that this memorial meal might be the most important thing any of us have done this week. So join with me. We're going to study this chapter, the second half of this chapter, and at the end I'll come down and make two, two applications of what we've studied. So we begin in verse 17 with the story of how the memorial was twisted in the city of Corinth. This is 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 17. But in the following instructions I do not commend you, 
Because when you come together, it is not for better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. If there's one core issue in in the church at Corinth, and there's a lot to choose from, a lot of issues, but if there's one core issue, it's the issue of division. It pops up over and over again in the letter. This was a church that was at each other's throats, that was excluding parts of the church, that was dividing among different lines at every turn, and that even included the Lord's Supper. And so in verse 17, he says, when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse, which is, I think, maybe the worst thing you could ever say about a church assembly. The assembly of the church is supposed to leave us better off than when we came. And when it's working the way it should, that's what happens. But in Corinth, people leave worse off than when they came. That for you all, going to church does more harm than good. You would, be, you would have been better off staying home than going to that assembly, which is about the worst thing you could ever say about an assembly. Verse 18, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And so there is an irony here. You come together, ostensibly, superficially, you come together, but the result of your coming together is just a further tearing apart. You assemble only to divide. You gather as one body for worship only to draw more lines of division in Christ's body. Then he says something I think really stinging in verse 19. He says, The divisions of Corinth may not be all bad in this sense. Verse 19, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, anytime there are divisions in the Lord's body, that's a bad thing. But Paul says there's at least one benefit from the factions forming in Corinth, which is it can make clear which members of the body are genuine and which are not. Now, nothing about this is good, but Paul says at least it makes obvious who's in the wrong. At least it makes obvious who is begging for God's judgment. So beginning in verse 20, Paul describes how these divisions work themselves out of the Lord's Supper. Now, I I find it difficult that we we have to be kind of detectives to figure out exactly what was going wrong. You know, he's writing to them, assuming a a knowledge of what was happening, because they're all members of that church. And we, the readers, after the fact, have to piece some things together. But what seems to have happened was that the Lord's Supper, their Lord's Supper, had begun to sort of follow the form of of a typical Roman banquet. So, for example, the the typical banquet at the time would seat guests according to their social status. And the wealthier and more powerful would be in the dining room and at the head of the table closest to the host. And the the higher quality food would be served to them, like sort of like being in first class on an airplane. And then you'd go on down the line all the way to the servants eating eating outside or something like that. Uh, Some have also pointed out that the, the language in verse 21, part of the problem is there are some who go ahead And Paul's correction to that in verse 33 is that you wait for one another. So the problem is going ahead and the solution is waiting. And some have said this feeds into that dynamic as well. That, you know, the servant servant class and the working class, they have no day off in that time. There's no such thing as a weekend in in the Roman Empire, not for that class of people. There's no schedule flexibility. And so if the, the meeting is happening during working hours when the sun is up, they're sort of given the leftovers and left out of the entire proceeding. 
So characterizing the problem this way, as modeling the Lord's Supper off of a, a Roman dinner party, and it's made into this self-indulgent meal, and even describes people as getting drunk, and then excluding and demoting the poor in, in all of it, I think this makes sense of Paul's exasperation in verses 20 through 22. What Paul says is, Brethren, whatever you think it is you're doing when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper. It's a lot of things, and it's not that. Don't call it a meal commemorating Christ when you're just enjoying yourself. You know, if you want to just eat and fill your belly, you can do that on your own time and in your own place. That's not what the Lord's Supper is for. And, and I think Paul might even say, you know, even if you were just having a common meal, um, even if, if the Lord's Supper were such a common meal, which, which it's not, even you can't even get a common meal right. Because you end up just showing contempt for those who are poorer, those who are not of your status, and, and by not sharing with them, and some go hungry. And so the fact that you intentionally exclude those who have nothing, that shows you don't understand the Lord's Supper. What should be an equal sharing of the body and blood of Christ among all the church becomes just a classist dinner party. What should be a memorial reminder of how all of us are dependent on the sacrifice of Christ equally has become a cause of humiliation and division within the church. And so that's how the memorial is twisted. That's why Paul writes what he does in the next verses when he takes us back Back to the basics, back to the fundamentals. And so we come to the memorial restored. What Paul does in verse 23 is simply this. He takes us back to the upper room, the place where Jesus instituted this meal on the night he was betrayed. And what he points out, subtly, is how Jesus and the apostles observed the first Lord's Supper is very different from what's happening in Corinth. Verse 23. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. And here's what he has received in his delivering. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul adds his comment in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I think Paul, what he's really doing here is just sort of letting the correction sit here in simply the reporting of the words of Jesus. Whatever it is they're doing in the Lord's Supper, it's got nothing to do with this. Jesus emphasizes the importance of remembrance in observing the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me, he says. Now, the Lord's Supper was instituted in the midst of another, of another memorial meal, another holy meal, the Passover, which, as we said in our introduction, in Exodus 12 is called a day of remembrance or a memorial day. Corinth is meant to feel a sting. In their observance of the Lord's Supper, they're doing little of that. They're doing little remembering of Jesus and, and they're doing a lot of filling their belly and dividing the church. What Paul says is if, if the Lord's Supper doesn't transport your mind back to Calvary, you're not doing it right. What Jesus emphasizes is the importance on really not just remembering, but also interpreting. Interpreting the significance of his death when observing the Lord's Supper. We're not just remembering an, an historical event. We're not just saying, oh yes, uh, I remember that time Jesus died. And that was a shame, I guess. More than that. We're thinking about the significance that event has, has to us. And so notice in verse 24, this is my body, the words of Jesus, 
Look at this phrase, which is for you. This is my body, which is for you. We are meant to ponder, what does it mean for Jesus' body to be for us? How does Jesus' sacrifice on the cross impact my life? Think about how eating the bread, which symbolizes Jesus' body, shows us how Jesus willingly shares his body with us. We are eating it, in a sense. He gave his body on the cross for us. It is a gift that sustains us, that gives us life and strength. When we think these thoughts, it also does something else. We don't just remember that and interpret its significance for us personally. Remember, it should also cause us to look around at those eating with us and to think, you know, when Jesus said, my body is for you, he wasn't just talking to me, Drew Nelson. He was talking to all of his people. And so Jesus' body is for me, and it's also for everyone else here, too. Think about what rich rich Corinthians would have been saying to poor Corinthians if they left them out of the Lord's Supper. They're saying, Jesus' body isn't for you. Jesus died for us and not for you. He died for us first and you second. This is my body, which is for you. And then verse 25, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The blood of Jesus has initiated a new covenant between God and his people. This is a huge subject of the book of Hebrews, which describes how the initiation of a covenant always involves blood, a shedding of blood. It was that way in God's covenant with Israel. Moses made sacrifices. He sprinkled the blood on the people and he said, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you, Hebrews 9 and verse 20. And then after he did that, after the covenant was initiated with that blood, the people responded this way. They said, we will do all that the Lord has said. What Jesus reminds us is that we are in a covenant with God every bit as much as them. An even better one, because Jesus is a much better sacrifice than any lamb or goat. And the Lord's Supper ought to be seen as a covenant renewal ceremony. Our covenant is that God will adopt us as children on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice. And in return, we say, as Israel did, we will do all that the Lord has said. God says, I will adopt you as my people, and we say, yes, we will act like your people. God reaffirms the sacrifice of Jesus through the cup. He reminds us that this blood is for us. And then we reaffirm our commitment to that one who died for us when we drink it. We say, yes, I want to partake in this covenant, and I will participate. This is verse 26 again. For as often, Paul comments, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are making bold proclamations to each other and to the world about the death of Jesus. He says God's people will keep the Lord's Supper from the time of Jesus' death until he comes again. For those of us living in between the two comings of Jesus, the first and second coming, this memorial keeps us grounded. What we do at the Lord's Supper is a proclamation and acting out of the significance of Jesus' death. And it's something we do with an eye toward the future when Jesus returns. We look both backward to Jesus' death and forward to his return. So so what Paul really calls calls the Corinthians to do is, is simply this. Return to the words of Jesus around that table. Forget about your selfish appetites and remember Jesus selflessly surrendering his body, surrendering his body and his blood. Forget about your social distinctions and remember that Jesus gave his body for all of us. Forget about your cultural customs, your feast, 
And remember that you're initiated into a new covenant, into a new family, into a new nation. Your observance of the Lord's Supper should be an announcement to the world that Jesus died for all and that all of his people are welcome around his table. Which then brings us to the final section of Paul's, uh, Paul's argument here in which he asks each memorial observer to examine themselves. This is verse 27. Let me, let me just point out, there, there's all sorts of uh, legal words here. It's sort of a little courtroom scene he sets up. So he uses words like guilty, examine, he uses the word judgment four times, condemned, and he basically presents them with basically two options. Either judge yourself or God will do it. Either you examine yourself and discipline yourself or else God will do the examining and the disciplining. This is verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So the first thing he does in verse 27 is just underscore the stakes. Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood, body and blood of the Lord. If this is a divinely instituted memorial of Jesus' sacrifice, instituted by Jesus himself, if it's this proclamation of everything we stand for as disciples, then when we mess with this meal like the Corinthians were, this is not just an affront to manners. It's an affront to Jesus himself. The Corinthians aren't just offending their brethren in in their practice, the brethren who get left out. They're offending Jesus. So here's what you do. Verse 28 Examine yourself. In verse 29, discern the body. Now what Paul means by examine himself, speaking of the Corinthians, should be obvious. They've been observing the Lord's Supper in a selfish way, in an unexamined way, a self-indulgent way, not a self-examining way. And he says, you need to go back and just examine what are your motives. Am I more concerned with showing deference to my rich brethren or am I more concerned with showing deference to Jesus? Am I here to fill my belly with food or to fill my soul with Christ? You need to examine yourself. But I think even the, the more ambiguous and interesting phrase is when he says in verse 29, discern the body, which could be taken in two different ways. You know, we could either discern the literal body of Jesus that hung on the cross. We could think very intently about that. Or he could be talking about the figurative body of Christ, which is the church, which is an image Paul uses a lot in the book of 1 Corinthians, that the church is the body of Christ. I think Paul has both in mind. Of course it's true we should get a clear picture in our minds of the body of Jesus hanging on the cross when we take the Lord's Supper. But the problem in Corinth had been divisions in the body, divisions in the church, that had worked themselves out into the Lord's Supper. And so to discern the body in that sense is also to think clearly about how your actions in the Lord's Supper reflect on your relationship with your brethren. So I want to put both meanings of discernment, uh, discerning the body together. And it goes like this. Your breaking of the bread should lead your minds first to think about the literal body of Jesus. And when you share it together all as equals before God, you also powerfully declare that you are all a part of that one body of Jesus. 
But if your breaking of bread causes you to break the room into different groups and exclude some and make some sort of hierarchy, you're powerfully making the opposite point. You understand neither the cross nor the church when you do that. And so he says in verse 30, a failure to discern the body. This is the reason he says many of you are weak and ill and some have died. In other words, if this is how you observe the Lord's Supper, it's no wonder there's so much spiritual disease in the church. If you can't get on the same page about the memorial that's supposed to put everyone on the same page, if you can't get that straight, don't expect to be the picture of spiritual health. And in verse 31 he says, Corinth, either judge yourselves now or be judged by God later. And it is much more important, it is much more gratifying and salvific to judge yourselves now. So, let me say, this church is not Corinth. Our problems are not theirs, thank God. But their issues around the Lord's Supper do cause Paul to go back and revisit the fundamentals of the Lord's Supper. Sunday is a perpetual memorial day. It is the memorial day in the New Testament. So allow me to end by summing up what it is God intends to happen each Sunday as we memorialize that event. Two quick points. Number one, the memorial reconnects us to Jesus. The memorial reconnects us to Jesus. You know, God has always been big on reminders. He gives his people concrete things to do to connect us to the past and to remind us of the relevance of these past events to our lives today and to help those past events bleed into our lives and shape our lives and and alter the narratives of our lives now. And so after the flood, he makes a rainbow as a reminder that he will never use a flood to destroy the earth again. God institutes the Passover to Israel to remind them of their deliverance from Egypt, and they're to observe that every year. The Feast of Booths reminded Israel of their wilderness wanderings. They had to go live in a tent for a week each year to remind themselves of what their, what their brethren, their the brethren of past generations had done. Or the constant stream of animal sacrifices in the Old Covenant reminds people of the price of sin and the heinousness of sin. God gives us tangible actions to do in order to be reminded of deeply significant things that have happened and the promises that he has made, to forge connections with the past. When Jesus sat at the table in the upper room on the night he was betrayed, he passed around unleavened bread, and he passed around fruit of the vine to the apostles. But he wasn't just passing it to them in a sense. He wasn't just talking to them. He was instituting a memorial for his people as a perpetual reminder of his body and blood. And as Paul reminds us in verse 26, it is a reminder we are to carry out until Jesus returns. Until the day Jesus returns, his people will continue to think about his body that was broken for us and the blood of the new covenant that was shed for us and how in the world that makes a difference in our lives. Corinth's problems remind us we can do this reminder while forgetting what it's about in the first place. What Corinth had forgotten was the Lord part of the Lord's Supper, and they just made it supper. But when you lose your connection to Jesus in the Lord's Supper, when you make it anything other than that, when you lose your connection to Jesus in the Lord's Supper, you are losing your connection to Jesus altogether. The Lord's Supper is meant to reconnect us with Jesus, but not only that. The Lord's Supper is meant to reconnect us with each other. Corinth teaches us the Lord's Supper can be the, the basis of our unity or the basis of our division. They lost sight of the core reason 
And so they, they weren't sufficiently reminded of Jesus' sacrificial death, and they weren't reminded of their truest identity, which is that we're all blood-bought servants of Christ. And as a result, their assemblies left people worse off than when they came. They came together, verse 19, only to be further divided. They left people out of the worship. They humiliated their poorer brethren, verse 22. And Paul says, this is the core reason your church is so sickly and dysfunctional, verse 30. Here's what's supposed to happen. We gather around the table each week. And in doing so, we are reminded of the fundamental truth of our salvation, one of them, which is Jesus died for us. And when I look around at the people eating with me, I remember us isn't just me. Jesus didn't just die for me, he died for them too. And that is the entire basis of our unity. That is the only reason any of us have anything to do with each other. Let's be honest. This is the the biggest thing we have in common. We are all blood-bought servants of Christ. Being reminded of that fact every single week should result in our coming together in unity as a church. Paul pictures the table of the Lord's Supper as the place we gather around to remember the fundamentals of our discipleship, one of which is that the death of Jesus' body brings us into one body. When we think of the body of Christ, yes, we think of his body hanging on the cross, and then we think of the church, which is his body. Jesus died for me, and he died for all these people sitting around me too. That realization is the basis of our unity. It's the basis of our fellowship. It's the basis of the love and care we exercise toward each other. It's what puts us all on the same page. And so may we never be like Corinth. May we never be a bunch of ingrates when it comes to the Memorial Day. May we never forget to memorialize the greatest man who has given us literally everything that is good in our lives. And so maybe there's someone here this morning who realizes that when it comes to the death of Jesus, you have been acting like an ingrate. You have simply taken it for granted. You have treated Jesus as something less the incredible Lord and Savior that he in fact is. Maybe there's someone who needs to repent of their sin. Maybe someone needs to come and be put into the body of Christ through baptism in the first place. Whatever your need, come forward now as we stand and sing. Sinners Jesus will receive All who linger, all who fall, sing it all and o'er again. Christ receive a sinful man. Make the message clear and plain. Christ receive a sinful man. Come and he His word is plain. He will take the sinfulness. Christ receive the sinful man. Sing it all and all again. Christ receive the sinful man. Make the message clear and plain. Christ receive our sinful